2023. What a crazy year. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. Hello, it's Robbie from Chatting Tracks and welcome to this 2023 roundup. I've had an absolutely amazing year on the podcast this year. I've spoke to some incredible people, some artists I never thought I'd speak to, and I've done some amazing things. So I thought I'd just do a bit of a recap over the year and see what's happened. So first of all, we've got to address the fact that the podcast changed. Originally, it was the 80s Rewind Show podcast, and I realised after a little while that I painted myself into a corner, and I was struggling to get guests, and I'd spoke to a lot of people that I wanted to speak to in that period. So I decided to change it to the Chatting Tracks music community. That way I can talk to people from different genres and different decades, and it didn't matter. As long as it's music, that's all that counts about this. So uh, first of all, the name changed. That's the first thing that happened this year. You know, I love the 80s. It's my favourite decade, to be honest with you. But I wanted to talk to more bands and more artists from, from different genres, because I got like there's not songs that I like that I just wanted to dig into a little bit more so i decided to diversify to find out more about these songs and artists and i've done exactly that but we did start the year in the 80s so let's start right at the start of the year when i spoke to vic fuzzbox or vicky perks from i've got a fuzzbox and i'm going to use it they were big in the 80s with such hits as international rescue and pink sunshine i now asked vicky where did the name come from i think it was just called fuzzbox but we were only called fuzzbox over there because they thought our full name we've got a fuzzbox and we're going to use it they thought that was rude and that we were trying to be saucy. I mean, we were innocent, <laughs> innocent schoolgirls, Robbie. <laughs> I mean, now you say that, I get the connotation of why an American would think the fuzzbox word is a rude word. I get that now. I've never actually thought of it that way, yeah. Oh, well, there you are. You see, you're innocent, like we were. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a fuzzbox, for those who may not know, is a distortion pedal for a, a bass or a guitar, and it goes, <clears throat> makes it fuzzy. And we use it in every song, partly because it, we like the sound, but also because it covers up all your mistakes more. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And we did a lot of fuzz phase and fuzz flange and, mind you, that sounds dodgy. Um, but yeah, we did get lots of people, like the audience would often go, show us your fuzz box, you know. <laughs> wow. And you'd be like, oh God, here we go. And you pick it up at, at, you know, the pedal and just show it. All right, can we get on with the gig now? <laughs> you know. <laughs> The wonderful Vicky Perks there from I've Got a Fuzzbox and I'm going to use it, talking about some of the problems they had with the name. I think it's a great name. I don't see what the problem is. She was an absolute delight to talk to and she's just so funny and the band is absolutely brilliant and they're touring at the minute as well. And she also mentioned in the interview they're working on like a scrapbook type thing of uh, paper cuttings and news articles of the time. So you might be able to get some more stuff about Fuzzbox coming up soon. After that, I had a chat with the wonderful Clark Datchula from Johnny H. Jazz, who had such hits as Shattered Dreams and I Don't Want to Be a Hero, just to name a few there. And we spoke about how he wrote the hit Shattered Dreams. How did Shattered Dreams come about? Was it lyrics first? Was it melody first? Did it all sort of just click? Or was it a dream and you wrote it down? How did it work? No, which is interesting how that does happen. Is yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote it in this room. And oh, wow. I wrote it on a piano, which is over there, which you can't see. It's still there. I've got wow. my old steinway next to me my steinway grand which has been with me many years but the piano i learned on my kemble my dad's my mom and dad's kemble is still over there i'm actually looking after my mom now in her older age so i've set up a studio in the room where i used to have a rudimentary recording setup as a as a kid wow um so it's it's full of vibes and memories here so shattered dreams i was i was writing it on the piano over there and my dad came in and he didn't used to do this. He always gave me space. We talked a lot about music and he guided me when he felt it was appropriate. But he came in and he said, what's that you're working on? I said, it's called Shattered Dreams, Dad. And he went quiet and he said, 
I think you've written your first hit. The wonderful Clark Datchler there talking about writing Shattered Dreams, probably one of the biggest hits of the 80s. If you like any of these interviews and these clips, don't forget all these interviews are available on this channel. If you're listening to it on YouTube or if you're listening to it on Spotify, wherever you are, um, all these interviews are available and they're definitely worth listening to because I've found out some fantastic stuff and I've had such an amazing year interviewing some amazing people. Talking of you know, wanting to be broader with the show and getting more people involved in it. I spoke to Chris Hughes, who was Adamant's drummer for many, many years, and his name was Merrick in in the band. And he became a producer for Tears for Fears, and he produced many, many albums, including Paul McCartney, and, and worked with Paul McCartney, and many, many albums. And he's a fantastic guy, a fantastic producer. Some of these people you meet them, they're just so lovely that I had problems originally. We, we were hooking up online. All the interviews are done online. That's why sometimes they sound a bit weird and swelchy, but we were talking online and it just, um, we had problems with connecting one day and it took us three interviews to get an entire hour done. And bless him, every time he was so patient, so kind, and he came back every single time and gave me 100% of his time with the interview and it could not have been nicer. And he's such a nice man and, and the songs he brought to the world have been absolutely remarkable. Anyway, I spoke to him about Tears for Fears and Music from the Big Chair, the album, and he had this to say about songs it. Songs of the Big Chair was the main album where you produced the whole thing. It yeah. seemed to be a more polished album, a more focused album. Was that the idea going into it that, to make it... Electric? I, know, I, 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 think it had, I think it had quite a fractured start. Wow. You know, there was, I think there was, a, there was a point where they weren't sure they wanted that they may have wanted to produce, have someone else produce it. They wanted to try something else. There was a period when it wasn't clear whether we were going to be doing that. Uh, right. And I think we started and thought, oh, I don't know if this is going anywhere and not quite sure. And I think Ian Stanley, who, who had been a mainstay within the, the team, he, he, I think he had a conversation with Ron and said, no, no you're nuts. We, we, let's, let's keep working with him. You know, come on, let's just, just do it. Chris Hughes there talking about working with Tears for Fears and it just goes to show even if you're a well-known producer you might not always get picked for the job amazing it was a great interview and I love talking to him and we spoke about Adamant and some of the people that he worked with so if you get a chance to check that interview out you'll absolutely love it it's, it's brilliant so because of the podcast like I said he's online we get to talk to people from all over the world and the next lady I spoke to was an 80s legend the wonderful Trees of Bazaar from Dollar um, that was my first is it Atlantic call I had to call her in Australia so I spoke to her about 11 in the morning to me, and I think it was about nearly midnight for Teresa. So it was, it was a crazy time because I had bright sunshine and Teresa was ready to go to bed because it was nighttime. I think it's nearly midnight for Teresa. So bless you, she stayed awake to speak to me. And she was an absolute delight. And we were talking about Dollar, and she was learning to do a lot of production work as well during the 80s. And she worked with Trevor Horn, so she watched him like a hawk and discovered how he did stuff. And in this part of the interview, we spoke about how she wrote their first hit, Love's Got a Hold On Me. You had uh, Love's Got a Hold On Me as well, which was your first self-written one. Is that right? So can we talk about the writing of that? Was that easy to write? Was it a quick song to, to do? So we were in our flat and I uh, had my grand upright piano sort of stuck in the bedroom there, really. And uh, it was inspired by the Bee Gees' How Deep Is Your Love? Hmm. Because I love the Bee Gees. Again, it's harmonies. You know, I'm going... How do they do that? How do they create that sound? It's not just that, it's a sound. And I thought it sounded so airy, which I guess resonated with me. And I thought, try and do something that suits you. <laughs> not trying to do something that is the opposite, um, which is what we all like to do. You've got red hair, make it brown, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, I think that the, the melody came quite easily. And um it was obviously I was writing it for David because that's that was the you know if you've got a hit record 
um, with the guys and dolls experience, don't don't upset the apple cart. Just stick to the formula. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of I I liked it was a very natural, easy song to write, and and it, and it was uh, ideas of you know summer breezes, you know that lovely sort of freshness. And uh, we went into the studio, and he couldn't sing it. I remember Chris Neal looking at me because I was in the control room and Dave was in the studio. And he said, but you wrote this, right? I said, yeah. And he said, it's in his key. And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, and he looked at me. I said, just shrugged. I mean, I thought because, you know, that's David. David's, you know, he could, if he got something, he'd be okay. If it didn't fit instantly with him, he couldn't learn it hmm. you know he just it just was he just was it had to be a natural instinctive thing and um so that's when chris said well you go and have a go and i remember i'm a i'm a very polite i would say oh no 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 i said it's not in my key and and that's not what we're meant to do and he looked at me and said just go and have a try and i hate doing that maybe from when i was a kid at school and you know not achieving and a bit embarrassed and I still thought oh my gosh I thought okay <laughs> you know do the right thing and I wandered in and obviously I've got David's expression in the control room and Chris expectantly looking at me and thinking this is just going to be horrible I know it's going to be high you know I thought just just try you know what can you do and um when I started singing the melody you know, there's Chris Neal beaming through the studio, going like this. And I'm going, really? And he goes, really, really? And I'm going, okay. Because, you know, you have this helmet on. You are the backing. You know, I've always been a backing vocalist in Guys and Dolls. You know, this is my job. That's what I do. I like to do everything I do very well for my ballet training, be very specific. I'm a perfectionist. And suddenly... It was very different. Teresa Bazaar there talking about how she wrote the song Love's Got a Hold on Me. It's interesting to see how much Teresa really did when we was talking during the interview because it seemed very like David Van Day driven dollar. But it turns out Teresa was doing literally 90% of the work behind the scenes. And it was wonderful to hear her side of the story and just get her version of things that happened. So I'm just going to take a quick break and say, you know, the year's been crazy. I've tried lots of new things this year. And it's been just really experimental and completely different for me. I went to two farewell tours and I thought I'd go to Elton John. I bought my tickets back in 2018 and I got shuffled around. I got to see Elton John this year and he was amazing. It was a fantastic goodbye tour. And I saw Kiss on their farewell tour as well. I didn't get to think I'd get to see them. I got a £10 ticket. A mate got me a ticket for a 10. I went to see it. It was well worth way more than 10 quid. It was a brilliant show and they ended fantastically. Also, the years, you know, the chart's been crazy this year. The best album was the Rolling Stones with Hackney Diamonds. The best single of the year was the Beatles with Now and Then. And obviously the Christmas number one that's just gone this year was uh, Wham! with Last Christmas. So we took, you know, a step back and looking at these older bands. So it's, it makes you wonder if it's the state of the music industry today that people prefer safer and older stuff that they know. But one of the big changes for me personally is something that I never thought I'd get into was doing live streaming and a YouTube channel. So Chat and Tracks as the Chat and Tracks music community on YouTube where I've got some of these interviews where you can actually watch interviews rather than listen to them. 
and also on there I'm doing reaction videos to songs, unboxing to bits that I buy and just generally talking music on there as well. So if you want a bit of a visual thing, you can pop over to that. I'm sure there'll be links in the description and everywhere you get links, there we want to the YouTube channel. And it and it's just been amazing to do live streaming. My friend Pete Saxer has a show called Unknown Sounds where he gets unknown bands and unknown singers and songwriters. And we play the videos and we talk about the songs and we just basically do a review of the track with the artist and it's been really, really good fun. And we just sit there and we talk for an hour and play music and just talk about stuff that's going on in the charts at the time. And if you get a chance, check out those. Um, un- we call it Chatting Sounds because it's Unknown Sounds and Chatting Tracks mixed together. So if you get a chance, check those out as well. I'm sure there'll be a link in the description. I'll put one in there as well for you to find it if you want to have a bit of a live chat. And people can talk to us live as well, which is nice. So we interview some of the artists that he's got on the show. And we also talk about music and people can talk to us live during the event, which is wonderful. Anyway, I'll stop talking about that because I'll talk about it all day because I really enjoy it. Next up, we've got Mike Edwards from the fantastic band Jesus Jones that had hits with International Bright Young Thing, just to name one. And we spoke about how he went about songwriting and does he enjoy it? You got your first band together. Were you starting to songwrite at a really young age or were you sort of just doing covers and finding your way through? Uh, yeah, co- covers initially like everyone else. And then you you, you start uh, writing your own stuff, um, which, of course, was absolutely appalling. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I know there are some people, and uh, I, I think Jerry in the band has, has talked to Miles Hunt because Jerry played in the Wonder Stuff for for a short while to, to help them out. And I think there's there's one of the songs off off the Wonder Stuff's first album that was, I think, maybe the first song Miles ever wrote. It was written when he was something like sixteen, you know. And it's obviously it's on their first album. It's a really good song. Yeah. And I'm just I'm just full of admiration because you know I didn't write anything even halfway decent for the first 100 songs I'd say it was all absolutely dire before then so that's that's impressive. Mike Edwards there from Jesus Jones talking about songwriting and how he started. He was such an ordinary person. It sort of threw me because I remember back in the 90s I bought the single In National Bright Young Things and then Top of the Pops was about. And then you you sort of go and watch it, and then you'd see him with his sort of shorts on and his because um, he was into skateboarding, skateboarding shoes, and his hat on backwards and all that sort of stuff. And he had that real rebel sort of attitude. And then you know, and then you meet him online, and he speaks about you know drinking green tea and going cycling at the weekend, and it's it's just really strange when, because there was no jump for me. There was like a thirty year jump, but he was such a nice fella, and he was so down to earth. I could have spoke to him all day, and we spoke about his influences being the sweet, you know, like Blockbuster and songs like that, which you never would have expected from Jesus Jones to be influenced by it. I just don't know why I didn't make the connection sooner, but I just didn't. But he was a lovely guy. Yet again, interviews in the description somewhere or on this channel. Try and find it and listen to it because absolutely charming fellow. He, he was incredible. So like I was saying, as I've diversified now, I can speak to more people from different genres. I went to another 90s artist and a wonderful Lee Murray from Let Loose. Now, you might remember Lee. He was the drummer. There was a three-piece band. Richie was the singer and Lee was the drummer. And they had a massive hit with Crazy For You that came out in the summer in the 90s. And I remember they came out, and I've got a full disclaimer, I didn't like them at the time. They seemed to be too posy, and, you know, me and my friends were into Pearl Jam and was grunge and music that made you stare at your feet. And this pop band come out with these pop songs, and we were like, don't like them, don't want to know. Turns out, you know, 30 years later, I love the track, Crazy For You. It's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, Lee Murray went on to tell me how they wrote the song. Also, Lee's a lovely guy, and he's doing a fantastic work with uh, people with autism and using drums to find out how to express themselves using drums. So if you go to the link on Lee's episode, there's a link to his website where you can find out how to get involved with that charity because it's absolutely fantastic. 
Anyway, this is how Let Loose wrote the song Crazy For You. How did the like, Crazy For You come along? Was the, did Richie have the demo then, or were you playing that at the time live? Or so We used to go around to Richie's house. He had a little flat in Bethnal Green, and I used to drive down there. It took me about an hour and a half, and we were down there every day, constantly sort of writing songs. He was the main writer, but we'd all sort of chuck in ideas and try and come up with songs. And, and actually, Crazy For You, we had a quite a turbulent relationship, Richie and I. We, we'd had a row on this particular occasion. I can't remember. I was a bit oversensitive. and I can't remember what he said, but something upset me, and I stormed off. And he was writing the sort of intro and bits and pieces of Crazy For You, and he said, I need help with this. And I stormed off and went downstairs and sat with his mum eating baked beans on toast. <laughs> And actually, with Crazy Few, we never really liked it that much. We we thought it was all right. It was very sort of fluffy, and but it was quite catchy. And it went through various different, you know, we worked on it a long time, trying to toughen it up a little bit, but it was what it was. You know, we remixed it a hundred times, trying to make it a bit more of a rock song. But, you know, it was the lyrics were quite sort of fluffy again and poppy. So we kind of parked it for a little while, but then Virgin really liked it, Virgin mm. Records. And that ended up sort of, again, we produced that all so many different times and changed it and rearranged it. And, but then we got dropped by Virgin. So again, it was all parked and we went back to writing more songs. So it was kind of just hanging around for quite a few years. Lee Murray there from Let Loose telling me about how they wrote the track Crazy For You. It sounds like a proper turbulent band, but they, some of the music that they made was absolutely fantastic. Now, it's not often you get to interview one of your idols, and I got to speak to the wonderful Nigel Planner from The Young Ones and Bad News. The Young Ones is my all-time favourite programme. I've got loads of stuff, loads of memorabilia from it. It's probably the greatest TV show ever made, in my opinion. It's, it makes me laugh to this day, even though I've seen it thousands of times. So I reached out to Nigel, who played Neil Pye on the show, and just said, would you like to have a chat? And he said yes. And yet again, we had internet problems, and we took about three sessions to get the interview done, and Nigel could not have been any kinder with his time and his patience with it. If you've never done a podcast, it's hard to describe how it is to meet your idol and not go absolutely bonkers with it. <laughs> anyway, this is the wonderful Nigel Plater, one of my heroes, talking about Neil's heavy concept album and the follow-up to Holding My Shoe, White Bicycles. Just talk about Neil's heavy concept album like how did it come about was you approached or did you approach someone with an idea for it because i know dave stewart produced it didn't he so did dave come to you or yeah dave stewart produced the single too right so what happened was we uh, a mate of mine alan mcgowan who was a music booker he booked a comedy and music club in brighton called the wits end he had the idea he said you should be doing a single as neil why don't you do hole in my shoe which was a damn good idea. And we toyed with the idea of doing it with Marillion, who I was supporting at some of their gigs at the time. And for some reason that fell through. I can't remember why. And then I can't equally remember who it was who suggested Dave Stewart. I think Dave Stewart got to hear that we were doing it and he was keen. I think, I think that's what happened. He got to hear that I was looking around for someone so I went to meet him, and that clicked immediately. This is not Dave Stewart of the Arrhythmics, by the way. This is Dave Stewart of Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin. And so we went to Spacewood Studios in Cambridge and, and made the single. And then it was such a big hit that we and the record company thought, well, let's make a, an album. And the record company wanted a second single, and they insisted on it being white, My White Bicycle, which I never liked that one as much as 
I, I felt we should have done something more like Ichiku Park as a second single. I think Neil doing Ichiku Park would have been really funny. And you know what? I think he's completely right. Imagine Neil doing Ichiku Park. That would have been absolutely incredible. What an interview. What a guy. I said to my uh, my friends and family, if I stopped my podcast now, I would have been totally happy after the interview. I've interviewed an absolute hero of mine. And when you meet these people and they're so nice, it just makes you think you should meet your heroes. I don't care what anybody says. Anyway, as I was saying, because I wanted to get more diverse, I was interested in all aspects of music. And I spoke to the wonderful journalist, Chris Welsh. Now, Chris Welsh was a guy that was around in the 60s, 70s and the 80s. And he's interviewed every single band you can think of. And he knows a lot of these people personally. He was an absolute diamond to talk to. And he was just so full of knowledge. He's currently writing a book, autobiography about his life, which I cannot wait to read. It's going to be full of such amazing stories. But in this one, he tells us how Led Zeppelin became Led Zeppelin. John Bonham, I first saw playing with uh, Led Zeppelin, then called, uh, it was still called the the New Yarbers at the Marquee. And I heard all about, Jimmy Page had told me about this new band he was forming. He came into the office. Can you imagine that? They, they all came up to see me in the office to tell me about their new bands after Cream and Hendrix experience. Now it was Led Zeppelin. And I said, <laughs> what's the name of the band? And he said, it's called Led Zeppelin. And I wrote it down in my notebook. He said, no, you spelled it wrong. It's L-E-D, not L-E-A-D. The wonderful journalist Chris Welsh. His autobiography is definitely something that I'm going to get and devour and read. He just knew everybody. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Bo, you name it. Mark Boland, he knew everybody and he's such a lovely fella as well. It was one of those interviews where I could have listened to him just tell me stories for hours and hours and hours, but I thought I want to find out more about the man and about his life and his life is fascinating. And a lot of the stories that he comes across, like meeting Led Zeppelin and Boland, they're all accidental. Everything he did in the music world is accidental, but he was right there in the middle of the most amazing times in music. So... I got a wonderful email during the summer from a guy that was a manager of a guy called Louis Prima Jr. Louis Prima Sr. was a jazz singer who was in Jungle Book. So I'm not going to tell you much more, but I interviewed his son, Louis Prima Jr., and he was a really lovely guy. He's out there touring at the moment, doing jazz-infused shows, swing jazz, and the energy and the amount of effort this man puts into a show is absolutely incredible. I don't know how he does it. I mean, you know, I'm half his age and I still couldn't do it. It's, it's phenomenal stuff. So anyway, here's Louis Prima Senior talking about his dad. Well, my father, he's tough to tough to describe because he was his, I've always felt he was his own style of music and his own style of entertainer. Uh, he didn't follow any mold. I think he was a forerunner or a front runner in every music style change. My father had his first band as a teenager in the 20s in New Orleans, Louisiana, 1920s. He wrote sing 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 which is arguably the number one song in the world i mean it's the number one big band song easily number one jazz song it's in the guinness book of world's records i mean it you still turn on the tv and it's in commercials and things but he wrote that when he was in 1936 he was 26 years old you know and then he went on to be a big band staple with hits through there and then he formed a a small combo and kind of put vegas on the map entertainment wise with Louis Prima and the Witnesses, you know, back then it was Keeley Smith. And, uh, you know, he he forged on through rock and roll, and people will say that he created rock and roll. I think what most people will recognize him for, at least, you know, when, when we're out on the road and performing, you know, you bring up the cartoon Jungle Book, Walt Disney's Jungle Book, and I think absolutely it you're hard-pressed to find somebody that has not seen that cartoon growing up or as an adult. And my father was the voice of King Louis in that movie, and that's probably his most recognizable role. 
but his, you know he was uh, he was a musician that people didn't respect as a musician. He was an entertainer that people didn't respect as an entertainer. But he drew crowds everywhere, and he was amazing, and people loved him. And you know, I'm fortunate to be able to build on his catalog and kind of continue it and bring it into the future without being a tribute act. You know, absolutely, I was influenced by him. It's a, but, it's amazing. Um, I was doing a bit of research on your dad prior to this, and your dad's got such a distinctive voice that I read somewhere that they um, a lot of places wouldn't book him in the early days because they thought he was a black artist. Absolutely. And, you know, the irony in that is he was the first white artist to play at the historic Apollo Theater in New York, probably because of that. But that, you know, it comes from his roots in New Orleans. I mean, he, he did have a gravelly voice, and people always kind of, you know, will say that he emulated or tried to copy Louis Armstrong. But the truth is, you know, if you go back into the history of music in New Orleans and what they did, I mean, these were street cats. You know, my father was 11 years old sneaking out of the house because they lived in the French Quarter to go see these fantastic inventors of jazz and, and the creators of that style of music back then. And they all were the same, you know, they, they all, they, they emulated the street performers and that style. Louis Prima Jr. there talking about his dad and his music. King of the Swingers, what a fantastic song. And what a, what a fantastic accolade to have, have your dad sing that song. He was a lovely guy. Like I said, if you see him online, look at the shows. The energy is incredible. So the podcast had some amazing opportunities. I say the podcast rather than me because I feel the podcast is is the face of all this stuff. And I got to go to some amazing festivals this year. I went to the Soltasia Festival which paid loads of soul artists. I got to go to the Poptasia Festival, which had Jason Donovan and Tony Headley. The reviews are in the description. And also the amazing Rewind Festival in Henley that had UB40 there, Nick Kershaw, Nick Hayward, Martin Kemp. And I got to see some amazing stuff. And that's what I mean. Like The, the podcast has grown so much this year that I got to go to festivals and review things and do things I've never done before. And it became exciting for me and it became amazing. And I just had so many amazing opportunities thanks to this amazing podcast. And thank you to you listening to it as well. It's It's been an amazing year. So on to the 70s now. I spoke to the amazing Paul Da Vinci, who had a hit with Your Baby Ain't Your Baby Anymore. He had a hit single with the Rubettes, but we can't really talk about that because it didn't end too well. But this is him talking about the track Your Baby Ain't Your Baby Anymore. He's a fantastic voice. And in a weird twist of fate, it turns out he used to work with my stepdad. My stepdad's a musician and he played on some of Paul's tracks back in the 70s. And they know each other really well. And it was one of those things where my stepdad said to me, um, you were doing your podcast and you're speaking to people from all decades and genres. Have you spoke to Paul? And I was like, no, actually, I haven't. So I contacted Paul, reached out, and he very kindly gave me some of his time on the phone and we spoke about his hit track. Anyway, this is Paul DeVitchie talking about Your Baby and Your Baby Anymore. So can we talk about Your Baby and Your Baby Anymore? How that came about, that track? Yeah, what happened was um, Eddie Sego, who was one of these uh, writers that I was signed to, had got this title, Your Baby and Your Baby Anymore. So I was sitting, you know, we've got a flat at the time, you know, and uh, we're, we're, I got married when I was 18, you know, we've got, we've got our daughter and everything. And, um, and uh, I'm sitting there writing and I, and I did, take my hand, don't be so sad and lonely. I understand, and although it hurts you, it's over, but it's not like before. Then it goes to E minor, because your baby ain't your, and, and at that point I went, because your baby ain't your baby anymore. And my wife went, oh God, have you, have you got to do it like that? Because you're going to have to now, you know, it's gonna. You know, you're gonna get half the thing. So I said, "Well, it just works." So I went over with Eddie because I knew he was he was going to finance it. So he wrote he wrote a few words to it, basically. Um, but basically, it was all done. You know, he wrote a few lyrics with me, but and he did get the title, which was very important. 
But um, yeah, but but then he, but I produced it, and then he put his name first on the production credits and on the writing credits, and I'm still waiting for money from them years later you know which is another story when you get to the part where you're talking in the song was that designed did you write that into the song or was it just an accident that happened and well you I, to... I did it purposely because i'll tell you what it was i was writing rock the, the record before it which featured john richardson from the rubettes on drums was called are you ready and it was a heavy rock record that went you know like this so and that's what I was into. But everyone was saying, "Oh, you couldn't have, you couldn't have sung on that record. Otherwise, you'd have been on top of the pops." You know, which was really getting my goat. So I thought I'm going to showcase the falsetto as much as I can. So I wrote a big fanfare at the beginning of that bar, bar, da 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 da, da and then the high notes, and then the middle bit, just like they did with Sugar Baby Love, where it goes, people, take my advice. I, I, I spoofed that, really. And at the very end of it, I thought, I'll really make it obvious. So I went, your baby and your baby Annie, and then sang the really high note without any backing whatsoever. So it was really designed to, to prove you know what I've done one of the greatest voices of the 70s there Paul Da Vinci how he hits that high range literally blows my mind I don't know how he does it he can still do it and he's doing a fantastic show at the moment he's just released a single called Give Me That Kind Of Love and it's got that 70s tone with a modern contemporary feel to it and it's absolutely fantastic if you get a chance go on Spotify and see if you can find that there's a link to that song in his interview so if you find the interview just you'll find it there anyway anyway on to Simon Williams now I was really fortunate in the summer to go to a book festival my local town has a literary festival and people come down and they talk about their books and you get to meet them and they sign them and stuff like that and i met simon williams who was the co-founder and runner of panda records they signed coldplay to their first deal as well as many other bands simon's a lovely guy um, and the books are amazingly intense simon decided to have a have a life-ending incident happen to him a few years ago and the consequences and the book covers that in all its glory detail and Simon's amazingly honest in the book and he's brutally honest and that's what makes the book so special. In this clip, Simon talks about seeing Coldplay and Simon for the first time. And it's amazing to think they're as big as they are. Let's put it that way. Anyway, here's Simon talking about it. I mean, I mean, obviously the key one is is, you know, Coldplay at the um when I first saw them at the um at the Falcon in Camden. You know, I mean they they did they looked absolutely bloody awful. They really, really <laughs> did. You know, he had his early mop top hair and his tank tops and his just and his terrible jokes and his his tiny acoustic guitar and they kind of ripped off Jeff Buckley and ripped off Radiohead and but they were absolutely compelling and and those jokes were actually they stood out ironic enough because of their naffness. We just had you know five years of everyone just trying to be you know Liam Gallagher <laughs> and God bless him, but he's not he's not a comedian, is he? Simon Williams there talking about Coldplay and why they signed up to Panda Records. The book's called Pandemonium, How Not to Run a Record Label. If you go to his episode, the link is in the description to buy the book. I think you should get it and just listen to it. It's absolutely fantastic. And it just shows you how difficult it is to be an independent record label in today's society. Okay, so we're nearly finished the roundup of this 2023 look back. It's been such an incredible year. And yet again, it's because I diversified and I could talk to anybody I wanted to at this point. I decided to, I've been a huge fan of Queen all my life. I love Queen and the Beatles and Stevie Wonder and Stevie Dan, all these bands. And Tim Staffel was a name that was floating around in the background in the Queen story. Now, if you've seen the Queen film Bohemian Rhapsody, He's the guy that Freddie Mercury walks in on and they're playing the gig and they're doing doing and right the track and then it cuts to outside and they say, Humpy Bong. And he says, yeah, they're going somewhere, man. It's just a shame that in that movie they condensed Tim's role to a little more than one line. 
Tim's a fantastic songwriter. He's a fantastic musician. His new album, Wayward Child, is fantastic. And at 75, which I think he said how old he was, he's still producing fantastic music. I mean, he's more than a footnote in the Queen's story. He's an important part, and he's an important part of the cog that is the Queen's story. And we went online, and he, we talked about music, and he's just a very affable guy that loves talking about music and guitars. Here we talk about Smile, which is their the early version of Queen and their demo. And looking back, this is what Tim thinks was wrong with the demo at the time. Yeah, I think, if anything, I think the problem with that was that it was too eclectic. There were t- the, 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 the variety of songs was too difficult, was too... And and we didn't we didn't clearly know how to produce them in those days because we were just a we were a little rock trio with harmonies every rock trio with harmonies right how do we do these songs well we do them like that right okay fine and we tried to fit them all into the same mould and that looking back in retrospect it wasn't the right thing to do polar bear should have been should have been done differently the wonderful Tim stuff were there talking about the smile demo and how he thinks it should have been done differently. So that is your 2023 recap of the Chatting Tracks Music Community Podcast. I've just played you XX from 13 interviews. I've done 13 interviews and a few more this year, but I didn't get time to put those in. It's been an absolutely incredible year, and I can't thank you all enough for your support, whether it be the podcast, the YouTube channel, or the live streams, or sending me songs, or inviting me to interview artists, or however you've been involved this year with the podcast. Thank you so much. It's just... It's been amazing. The idea with the podcast started with me just in a room with a microphone and going online. And this year it's literally just exploded into all these amazing opportunities and meeting amazing people, trying new things, trying new ideas. And I'm really, really enjoying it. I can't wait for 2024 to see what's around the corner and what I'm going to do with it. I was doing interviews twice a month and I've got a day job and it was becoming too much work. So now I'm doing one a month. But the YouTube channel has a lot more content because it's easier to produce and put on faster. So if you want to keep up more regularly with the podcast, if you go to the YouTube channel, you'll see there's more regular uploads on there just because it's easier to do reaction videos and put those on online. I can make those within an hour and get those online. That's why they're on there and there's a lot more content. It does not mean I've detracted from the podcast. I still love the podcast. The podcast format is what I love the most and what I really want to do. I'm just trying to spread the word about the community a little bit more. So if you can spread the word about the community, thank you so much. Yet again, thank you for your support and the opportunities this year have just been so mind-blowing and incredible. I'm such a lucky guy to be able to do this and talk about music, which is something I love more than anything, and just generally be in the ether with the podcast. So here's to you and 2024. I'm raising a glass to you. I wish you the best of health. I wish you the best of luck. And please join me on this journey next year and we'll see where it takes us both, shall we? So happy new year and I wish you the best, my friend, and I'll see you in the new year. Ta-da. Ta-da.